Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 17. We are crossing the finish line this morning, uh, or maybe just a milestone, uh, but we are, this is the last uh, time that we will have uh, an introductory message here on uh, the book of Daniel. This is our end of trying to summarize uh, God's Word up to uh, the book of Daniel. So next week, Lord willing, we will begin the book of Daniel. But we have some things to finish here. Now, the last time we were uh, together in this study, because I know last week was a bit different, we went through the northern kingdom of Israel. And I will review small parts of that. But when we when we finished our time together in the Word... The northern kingdom was still around. They were very concerned about the Assyrian Empire that was uh, trying to uh, conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. But uh, Assyria had not conquered Israel yet. Now Israel is not faithful to God in the north. They have walked away from the Lord immediately. And with a sense of finality, they have set up two golden calves to be worshipped, saying these golden calves are the gods that led us out of Egypt and through the wilderness and brought us into this land. They have come up with their own priests and they have elevated all of the other gods of the Canaanites along with these golden calves above Yahweh who is still being worshipped in the southern kingdom. And they do this for hundreds of years. And then we went through the story of Jonah in the context there. And now we read from 2 Kings chapter 17. We will read beginning in verse 5. Through 18. I think this will speak for itself. Little comment required. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land. And he went up to Samaria. And he besieged it for three years. Now Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and he carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel which they had made. Also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their cities from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill And under every green tree. There they burned incense on all the high places. Like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols. Of which the Lord had said to them. You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah. By all of his prophets. Every seer saying. Turn from your evil ways. And keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers 
and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers. And his testimonies, which he had testified against them, they followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had, cha- had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. Well, Uh, As I said, this is our last week introducing the story of Daniel, and this week we're going to focus on the southern kingdom of Judah, who is left alone, as verse 18 says there. But before we get started with Judah, I wanted to read this passage to you about the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. So here is our timeline, if you're following along. Creation, then the fall, sin introduced into the world. God making promises of a Savior who will redeem creation all the way back to Genesis 3. And then God identifying the family of that Savior who will come through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Jacob. Jacob is renamed and given the name Israel. He has 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel. They go down to Egypt to avoid a famine. And... They go down to Egypt, and then God brings them out of Egypt by the hand of Moses. Um, They wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they reject the God of Moses. They don't listen to him. They turn their back on him multiple times, even though they just watched him rescue them from Egypt. Well, eventually they go into the promised land, having repented of all of that, saying, to Joshua, who puts them to the test, we will serve the Lord our God. We will serve the Lord our God. We will serve the Lord our God. They go into the promised land. God gives them great victory. He moves out all of the nations. And what are these nations doing when Israel gets there? Well, they're doing the very things that come to reference in the passage that we just read there. They're practicing witchcraft. They're worshiping pagan gods. They're engaging in mass prostitution and mass adultery. And it's so awful. And and again, you and I struggle to have a frame of reference for a world that is totally devoid of the God of Israel because we have all been born and lived our entire lives in a world heavily influenced by Jesus Christ, by the God of Israel. But but if, if you were to go visit the Colosseum in Rome today and see the ruins of it. When you went to the Colosseum, you would be impressed with this massive structure that the Romans, that the Romans built. And, and you, would, you would encounter a lot of touristy things. And of the things you would encounter is this statue of, of Moloch 
that they have recreated outside of the Colosseum, Moloch being the ancient Canaanite god. Moloch was one of those gods, among all the other pagan gods, worshipped in the Canaanite land that God was giving to Israel, the promised land. And to worship him, there was a a place inside this statue's belly, um, an an oven where you would open the door and, and put children into it where they would be burned. And when the children were screaming, they would pound the drums to drown out the cry of the children screaming. When we talk about people worshiping foreign gods in pagan lands, don't misunderstand. These are not harmless statues. This is an evil beyond comprehension. We live in a world by the grace of God heavily influenced by what's called Judeo-Christian values. What are Judeo-Christian values? A value system which has been derived from an understanding of the value and the sanctity of human life. That is not the predominant, the prevailing theme of the ancient pagan people of the history of the world. And God brought them into this promised land and drove these people out of it And he gave them a possession. And for 400 years, they went back and forth between serving the gods that were in that land when they got there and then God calling them back to serve him. And then going back to serve those gods. And then back to God. And back and forth for 400 years in what the Bible calls the time of the judges. And eventually they say, look, give us a king. Because if we had a king, we would stay faithful to the law and to the commands. God gives them a king. Gives them three, Saul, David, and Solomon. And they are one kingdom. And for that time, during Saul, David, and Solomon's lives, for the most part, they stay somewhat faithful to the law that God had given them. Three kings. And then it all falls apart. Solomon, in the great splendor and wealth of Israel, marries many foreign wives from many other nations, uh, consummating treaties with all those foreign kings and trade. And on the surface, they're very prosperous. Israel is the, the, the glory of the Middle East. They, they are extremely, they are in deep prosperity. But as Solomon introduces trade with all of these other nations, and as the prosperity grows, so too does the idolatry, because as these people come, And as these wives, these princesses of these other kingdoms come, they want to worship their own gods, not the God of Israel. And it says Solomon, when he is old, builds altars and high places all around Jerusalem for those people to worship their gods. Well, Solomon dies and the nation splits. Um, His son, Rehoboam, ends up being king in the southern kingdom of Judah. But the predominant portion of the land and the people all reject Rehoboam. We're not going to pay your taxes. We're not going to serve your God. And they set up their own gods and it becomes the northern kingdom of Israel. And for several hundred years, the northern kingdom of Israel lives in complete rejection of God. Now, what we read in that text is God stays faithful in that period of time to them. Faithful how? He sends them prophet after prophet after prophet telling the northern kingdom who at the very beginning said, God is not our God. These golden calves are our gods. And yet He sends them prophet after prophet telling them. This is verse 13 of what we just read. 
Turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. God is faithful to call them, to call them, to call them, to call them. And they don't listen. Verse 14, nevertheless, they would not hear. Verse 15, they rejected His statutes. Verse 16, they left all the commandments of the Lord their God. And so God lets the northern kingdom be completely wiped out by the dominant empire of the day, the Assyrians. And that leaves the smaller southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is, where there is still a temple to God, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where there is still a priesthood, the southern kingdom where there is still a king from the the line of David on the throne. The southern kingdom remains. Well, that's where we are today. Um, The southern kingdom during this period of time, on the surface, gives honor and glory to the God of Israel, but is on their own roller coaster ride, sometimes serving God faithfully, sometimes, oftentimes, serving the other gods. But if we were drawing it out on a graph, if the southern kingdom starts very faithful to God, the graph is trending downward and away from the Lord God over time. Until finally we get to a king by the name of Manasseh. Turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles verse 33. Now Manasseh is a king from the line of David. Again, Second Chronicles 33, the turner, listen. If it's tough to find, that's all right. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Again, Manasseh, from the family of the great King David. He reigned for more than 50 years, and on the surface, it was a very prosperous reign. Now, the Assyrian king, the, the northern kingdom is gone at this point. They're gone. Assyria wiped them out. So all you've got left of God's people nationally is the southern kingdom of Judah where Jerusalem is. And and Manasseh, very prosperous time. A well-known historical king. The kingdom did very well, made lots of wealth through trade with other nations. Things were looking up economically, but as is often the case, when things are looking when things are going well economically, uh, hearts start to wander spiritually. And it was terrible with Manasseh. I'll I'll read you. This is 2 Chronicles 33, the first nine verses. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Sound familiar? Yeah. For he rebuilt the high places... Which, his, which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. Now I told you, they were on a roller coaster ride, right? Sometimes faithful to God, sometimes not. So their cycle of worshiping God was, we're going to build up altars to all these pagan gods, and then they would get a king that was better, and he'd tear all those altars down. And then another king would come, and he'd build, rebuild all these altars to the other gods. And another king would come, and he'd tear them down. So that's what we're hearing here. Manasseh did evil. He rebuilt all the altars that Hezekiah had tore down. He raised up altars for the Baals. He made wooden images and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also, this is unique, he also built altars to foreign gods in the house of the Lord. He built altars to worship these foreign gods, not just on hills, but in the temple. Of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. This was a particular insult to God. 
It's not just that they were allowing other gods to be worshipped in the land, that they were promoting that. They started to do it in the temple of God. You say, well, that's really bad. It can't get, can't get any worse. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So in the temple there are altars to gods. And then you walk outside the temple where the sacrifices were being brought and made into Yahweh, and it's a whole festival of altars to all the different gods of all the different lands. It's a polytheistic buffet when you walk outside the temple. Every god is it. Let people, let's go to the temple. Well, that's not my god. We'll put, you know, there's room to worship all the gods here. Well, it can't get any worse than that. Verse 6. Also, he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now that means this son of David gave those from the line of David to child sacrifice to the god Moloch to be burned in fire outside Jerusalem in pagan worship. So this was not just token lip service that Manasseh is giving to these false gods. He is all in, as wickedly as you can possibly be, for the greatness of the kingdom, for these gods' help in prosperity. He practiced soothsaying. He didn't, it wasn't just like soothsaying happened or witchcraft happened or sorcery happened. He tried to practice these things personally. He consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even, this is verse 7, this is the culmination of verse 7, he even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, his ancestors, David and Solomon, Manasseh's ancestors, in this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. Verse 9, So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than all the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. So, Manasseh was not neutral in his idolatry. He didn't just worship other gods. He turned the temple of God into the temple of these other gods. You get a sense of that in what I read. We, from another text we learn, he even set up booths inside the temple of God for prostitutes of these other gods to practice their trade in the temple of God. As bad as it could get. Here is how God... You think, well, if it's, this is what is happening. Surely God sent a prophet or someone to Manasseh. We read he sent prophets to the northern kingdom to, to warn them of judgment. Surely God responded to Manasseh. Like, this wasn't all happening while God was just kind of sitting back quietly observing. Surely God responded. He did. This is from Jeremiah chapter 15. Now, I'm just going to read to you the first six verses of Jeremiah 15 just to get a sense of God's interaction during this time. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. (laughs) 
Now, now get a sense of what God is saying here. He is so angry. Get a sense of this. In, in the Exodus, when Moses brought the people out of, out of Egypt, I told you, they rejected God over and over again, right? And several times, God's like, look, Moses, stand aside and I will destroy these people. <laughs> you know, stand aside. And, and Moses was playing the part of, of priest, of judge, and he would go before God and he would say, surely the Lord you, you will not do this. You, you don't destroy them for your great name's sake. Don't destroy them and God would relent. That's playing out in the Exodus. Same thing with the judges. Samuel being the last judge where the Lord is like, they have rejected me. They have rejected me and Samuel, surely for your great name and according to your promises, don't. And here God is saying, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, I would not relent from my anger towards these people and what they have done. Cast them out of my sight. This is Jeremiah 15. Let them go forth. And it shall be, if they say to you, well, where shall we go? Then you tell them, thus says the Lord, such as for death to death, such as for the sword to the sword, such as for famine to famine, such as for captivity to captivity. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble to all the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Who will bemoan you? Who will turn aside to ask how you are doing? You You have forsaken me, says the Lord. You have gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. And here's what caught me. I am weary of relenting. That is a terrifying thing to imagine. I deserve God's judgment in my life all the time. The Lord looks at the cross of Jesus Christ and does not give me what I deserve. And here, God is telling Jerusalem, I am tired of turning back. I am tired of relenting. Um, I was um, sharing this with my son two weeks ago just because I was preparing to preach it last Sunday. That, that I, cha- you know, I changed what I was going to... This was the message for last week, so I was sharing with him, and I was sharing, you know, just with my 12-year-old son, this idea that God, God can grow weary of relenting and relenting and relenting and turning back judgment. And I was, and he, you know, he's been paying attention, you know, on Sunday mornings as we've gone through all of this, and he says, yes, I remember, Dad, um, that you said that God was going to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And I said, this isn't about the northern kingdom, son. This is about the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is. And I remember, I'll never forget it. It was just one of those moments as a dad that he looked up at me and he said, God destroys the southern kingdom too? Because even in a 12-year-old's mind, there's a sense of which how serious it was that, that God would, would judge his people this way. And I said, yeah. God will not delay his judgment forever. That is true of Israel It's true of human beings too. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. We serve a merciful God, a gracious God, a kind God, a patient God. Hundreds and hundreds of years of sending prophets telling them, turn back, turn back, turn back, turn back. But eventually, God will judge Manasseh himself 
eventually goes through his own personal repentance, which is amazing. God allows Manasseh, this king who did all this, to be captured by the Assyrians. He's given over to their tortures. It says, you know, the Assyrians were vicious, and I won't get into it all, but they ran hooks through his nose and through his body, and he was taken to their prisons in Assyria and allowed to leave as kind of a vassal state at that point. In other words, his freedom returned to him later on in his life. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, he tries to undo much of what he's done. <laughs> he, tries to, he tries to do away with a lot of what, the, of what he's brought on to Israel. And he serves the Lord God. But not enough. It's too late. Now this paves the way for the focal point and the individual that we're going to focus on for the rest of our time this morning. This paves the way for another king, Manasseh's grandson, by the name of Josiah. Now, if you've never heard of the name of Josiah, or maybe you've heard of it, you don't understand it, I'll give you a very simple way to remember who Josiah is. Because in, in the great canvas of the picture of redemption that God is painting as we study the Bible together, that's why all this is important. If you only know of Jesus Christ and the cross, it is sufficient for salvation. But you are missing the beauty of what God has done to redeem you. You're missing the detail. You're seeing a part, the essential part, and missing the canvas that we see in His Word. Josiah, in this story, is described as the greatest king since David. The greatest king of Israel since David, and in some ways even commended more than David. A better king than David which is a pretty remarkable thing. This is our introduction to Josiah. This is Second Chronicles verse, or chapter 34. Second Chronicles chapter 34. I'll just read the first seven verses. You turn there if it's easy for you. If not, just listen. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. What an experience. What a life that had to be. But when the throne is available, the, the guy who's supposed to sit on it starts to sit on it. <laughs> He's eight years old when he became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord for this testimony. I want a testimony like this when I, when I stand before God. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. I want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, when I stand before God. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, now that's, that puts him at 16. He's a 16-year-old young man. While he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. <laughs> it's almost as if, you know, the first eight years of his reign, he's a boy and he's trying to figure out and there's all these gods and there's all this. And it's like, what, what kind of... What kind of man do I want to be? But when he's 16 years old, it says, he began to seek the God of his father David. In the 12th year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. It doesn't take him very long to realize we should not have all of these places to worship these other gods. He purges the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence. He, st he didn't just send somebody else to do it. He went with his own men to do it. <laughs> it 
one by one throughout the land, breaking down the altars and the places. And the incense altars which were above them he cut down. The wooden images, the carved images, the molded images, he broke them in pieces. He made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed it to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on those altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and all around with axes. He didn't just do this locally in Jerusalem. He went throughout all the promised land where he had any power or sovereignty at all and did it everywhere. When he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, he uh, had beaten the carved images into powder, had cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So reform. Clears out the idols. When he gets back, when he's in Jerusalem, trying to worship God, there is a problem. Apparently, in all of the the allegiance to these foreign gods, somewhere along the line, the law of God, the actual, their Bible, had come under persecution itself. And there were very few copies left that had not been destroyed. But the priests who were loyal to God kept back copies themselves that they did not tell Manasseh and the other evil kings about, lest they be destroyed. And so when he gets back, these priests see his sincerity to serving the one God and they bring him the law of God. If you can imagine, he knew of his God, he had heard of the laws, and he had much of the narrative, but he had not himself laid eyes on the Torah, on Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then they bring him a copy and when he reads it, he realizes it. We have broken all of God's commands and God says in this law, if we do that, the judgment will come. You can read all of this for yourself in these chapters. And he realizes things are much more dangerous for us as a nation than I realized. Like, it's as if he was operating under the idea that if we just do all this reform, everything will be fine until he reads the law of God and he realizes we are in trouble. Second Chronicles 34, verse 21. Here's how Josiah responds to realizing the severity of what's happened. 2 Chronicles 34, verse 21, Go inquire of the Lord for me. Go, go ask God for me. And for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do all that is written in this book. Like He, he knows immediately how big of a deal this was. He knows they have rejected the covenant he is pleading with God through the prophets, go inquire of the Lord for me to see if He will relent or turn back from the judgment that we deserve. But God has already said at this point through the prophet Jeremiah that He is not going to relent. And here is the Lord's answer. This is 2 Chronicles 34, verses 24 through 28. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book which they have read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hand. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and not be quenched. So God replies to Josiah, I will not relent. And then he adds this, 
But as for the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you've heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I have heard you, says the Lord. Surely I will gather you to your fathers." You shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. So God is not going to relent. The southern kingdom of of Judah is going to be judged. But because of Josiah's faithfulness, not during his lifetime, he will live out his reign. That judgment that God is delaying for Josiah is the narrative behind the book of Daniel that we are going to. Daniel lives through the judgment that Josiah was spared. Um, I want to read to you about Josiah's death. This is Second Chronicles 35, verses 20 through 27. After all of this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, the king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates. Josiah went out against him. So Necho basically is moving through Josiah and and Israel's, Judah's land with a huge army. Josiah was not just going to sit by while uh, a foreign enemy, Egypt, moves all of their troops through his land. So he gathers his troops and he goes out uh, to meet them in war. But he, now that's Necho, but he... Pharaoh Necho sent messengers to Josiah, saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Now Necho sends a word to Josiah and says, Look, I'm not here to fight you. I'm just moving through your land. And he claims God has sent him on this mission. But Josiah does not believe Pharaoh Necho. Um, you would probably not believe Pharaoh Necho either. It says, nevertheless, verse 22, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him and did not heed the word of Necho from the mouth of God. So he went to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah, And the king said to his servant, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of the chariot, put him in a second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died. He was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. They are are beside themselves that the greatest king since David has, has died. All Judah, all Jerusalem mourn for Josiah. Jeremiah, the prophet, the one who spoke against Manasseh. Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. And to this day, all the singing men and singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. Josiah became a national figure of mourning because he died this way in the valley of Megiddo. 
They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed, they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord, and his deeds from the first to the last, indeed, they're written in the books of the kings of Judah. So Josiah goes to war with the enemy of his people. He gives his life trying to save them. He fails. He's pierced with these arrows, and everybody mourns. He's not able to save them, and this is effectively the end of the southern kingdom. They carry on as a vassal state to the Assyrians for a few years. But the political part of this, because they get defeated and they become basically servants of the Assyrians, the Assyrians were enemies of the Babylonians. And so when the Babylonians go to fight the Assyrians, they wipe out the southern kingdom. So this is effectively the end. And you say, why does God allow this to happen to Josiah? Why this death this way? Why not something peaceful? Why not something something noble? Why does he allow him to go down into this valley to fight against an enemy, to fall? Why does he cause this to be a, an event of national mourning? What is going on here? And then a hundred years later, Zechariah the prophet writes about this. Now, now pay attention. This is important. We're, we're almost done. Here is Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 12. Verses 10 and 11. This is a prophet. And this is 100 years after Josiah's death. This is after the judgment which God pours out on the southern kingdom. This is what Zechariah writes. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and of supplication. That had to be good news. Because <laughs> this is after they've been wiped out entirely. And here, the Lord is sending a prophet with a new message. I will pour on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Now this is God talking, and you say, this is strange. They will look on the Lord whom they have pierced. Okay. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Okay. God is going to pour out a spirit of grace and supplication on Israel. They will look on him whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. So what Zechariah is saying is, just as the people mourned for Josiah, the son of David, who was pierced and died in the valley of Megiddo, when I pour out a spirit of grace and supplication on, on Israel, they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn as one mourns for an only son like they did for Josiah. Like they did for Josiah. The valley of Megiddo is also known as Armageddon. In, in the Greek... How do you get from Megiddo to that? Well, Har means mountain. Megiddo is, so it's the mountain of Megiddo, the valley, and the mountain which gives way to the valley of Megiddo. So if you've heard of, of Armageddon, you probably have heard a lot of wrong stuff about Armageddon, but it is the idea of the, the return of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you can see the imagery of what God is painting in this story of redemption. Here is Josiah, the best king of the line of David, the most faithful king of the line of David, the son of David who is, who is king in 
in Jerusalem. And here he is going out to fight the enemies of God to try to save his people. And here he is pierced in the valley of Megiddo. And here he dies trying to save them. And the people mourn. And what God is saying in the prophet Zechariah is very similar to what God is saying in Isaiah 53 to the prophet Isaiah. That there will be another son of David. That there will be a king of kings and a lord of lords. And he will go to war with the enemy of his people. And he will be one who has given his life to save them. But where Josiah failed, Jesus will have victory. And when the, 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 the inhabitants of Jerusalem look on Jesus, they will mourn that they rejected him, that, that they sent him to a cross. They will mourn that they cried out, crucify him. They will mourn for him as one mourns for the death of an only son. And in that day, at the return of Jesus Christ, God will pour out a spirit of grace on them. It will not be human. It will not be humanly. It will not be creaturely. God will soften their hearts to see Jesus for who He is. Their Savior who has died for them. Who has given His life for them. And in the battle of Armageddon, He will be victorious where Josiah was not. Jesus, this man promised in Genesis 3, in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, in Genesis 49, in Exodus 4, in the law who appears as the commander of the Lord's army to Joshua, this son of David in First and Second Samuel who will reign forever and ever. This Jesus, the prophets continue to declare all the way through Zechariah. He will come. He will give His life. He will save. He will rule and reign forever. Now this Jesus does not take a back seat in the middle of Israel's judgment. But as we go through the book of Daniel, we will see Jesus in chapter after chapter after chapter. Israel's lot in life nationally will never be the same. It will never go back to the glory of Saul, David, Solomon. But there is coming a king who will rule and reign forever in Christ. That's where the prophets turn their attentions to. I know that this has been a long journey, um, 850 chapters and I think nine messages. But there is so much that God is painting here. There is so much that God is doing here. It is certainly sufficient to tell you. It's a faithful saying to say that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That is sufficient. That is good. That is faithful. We should say that. But there is more to say. There is more to know. There is more to marvel at. And I hope we can do that together in the weeks ahead. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I pray that um, we'll have an appreciation for how long you have been about this work of salvation in the world. That our lives are like a fading flower here today and gone tomorrow. We, we, are, we are here sometimes for only moments and sometimes human beings will live 80, 90, 100 years. Most of us somewhere in between there. But our perspective of who you are and what you're doing 
is often so confined to what we see in our own lives. And yet you have been active from the beginning of the world even to the end. From the beginning you have declared your intention to save, to bring about a Messiah, to restore a world that was made good back to its goodness. And you are patiently relenting on judgment. A judgment that we deserve. A judgment that the world deserves. But you are slow to wrath. Slow to anger. Desiring that none should perish. But that all should come to repentance. That all should be saved. Father, thank you for the time allotted to the people in this room this morning. That no matter where they are spiritually today, you have once again called them to hear of the salvation offered to them in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that the hearing of these words will be effective to something more than judgment and condemnation. But that as people hear that Jesus died to save sinners that they will accept the salvation offered to them and follow Jesus in faith. Help our pastors and teachers in our church to be effective in communicating these things and help the people in our church to be loving reminders of the unity that we can have in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.